With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. There are more golf courses in the U.S. than anywhere else, about 2 million acres of green space all told. But there aren't enough golfers to keep them all in business. Wisconsin Public Radio's Phoebe Petrovic reports on the consequences. To understand what's happening today, you need to understand what occurred about 30 years ago. In the late 1980s, golf was surging, and the National Golf Foundation encouraged the industry to build a course a day for 10 years. Jeff Davis, with the firm Fairway Advisors, says that encouragement was taken to heart. The genie was out of the bottle. Developers, all they heard in the mantra became was build a course a day. And they did it. Over a 20-year period, up until the early 2000s, they built more than 4,000 new golf courses. Greg Nathan with the National Golf Foundation says many of those courses fit the same mold. It was a lot of expensive to build, expensive to maintain, high greens fee golf courses. And Jay Karen, who's with the National Golf Course Owners Association, says it wasn't the golf industry building the courses. It was the home building industry that really drove much of the boom. Home builders made new golf courses the central amenity in the communities that they built around the country. Communities like this one, built in Florida in 2000. Waterleaf Golf and River Club, a one-of-a-kind residential community. In Florida, California, Pennsylvania, developers gobbled up land and built lush, rolling courses, surrounding them with expensive homes and hotels. Tiger Woods was in his prime, and residents sometimes paid millions to live in gated communities alongside golf courses. But Karen says exclusive, expensive courses weren't the only ones built in the 90s. A lot of municipalities were also getting this exuberance around golf and wanted to add these crown jewels to their parks and recreation divisions and portfolios. But soon, there was too much supply and too little demand. The number of golfers and rounds played began to decline in the 2000s. And across the U.S., courses began to close, 10% of them since 2006. 
The National Golf Foundation says that reflects the market correcting itself. And for the remaining 14,000 courses, competition for players is fierce, especially for the almost 11,000 courses that are open to the public, whether daily fee courses owned by companies or municipal courses run by cities. Madison, Wisconsin, has more than a dozen golf courses in the area, and the city's four municipal courses are in crisis. They've lost money for the last decade, almost a million dollars last year alone. Brad Munn grew up playing on Madison's municipal courses and now works on them. He's at the Monona Golf Course today, driving in a cart. This is one of my favorite ladies. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Okay, I got the reporter here, Nancy. We're ready to watch. Munn and Nancy Poole have known each other for about 30 years. She's played this course nearly every week with her women's group. And we feel very strongly that it's part of the Madison parks like bike paths and ball diamonds and everything else. We need to keep it open. City leaders say they're considering every option for the struggling courses, including closures. That worries Madison's park superintendent, Eric Knapp. He says losing municipal courses could limit access for everyday golfers. American golf has always had a stodgy, affluent, elite feel. Now, I know that's not our golfers. And I don't think it's good or healthy to have a space where we have 750 acres that are viewed as for these other people. That's for golfers. The municipal courses make up almost a fifth of Madison's parkland. And Nepp says the best way to try to save them is to treat them as a public commons. For NPR News, I'm Phoebe Petrovic in Madison. Context of white supremacy, Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, June 20th, 2019. So I have been told this is our 16th second to last study session on James Lowen, suspected racist, uh, his book, Sundown Towns, A Hidden Dimension of American Racism. Second to last study session next week. Next week, we will be all done and moving on to a new book. If you have suggestions for a new book, let us know. Thanks, everyone, uh, for tuning in, listening. Hope it's been worthy of your time and energy uh, over the last uh, couple months that we've been reading the text. I know I have learned some things and observed how white authors practice racism white supremacy. The audio segment that we heard at the top, I heard that uh, on NPR, I think like two weeks ago, it was earlier this month and right in line with many of the themes that are presented uh, in this text. Uh, And again, it reminded me that same thing. Mr. Fuller talked about how racists, whites, they waste lots and lots of resources. You heard about all these expensive, extremely high maintenance golf courses. And now people fell out of love with Tiger Woods. So you don't even have as many people golfing. Uh, But all of that plush property, that right there, uh, I mean, could be doing things to replace white supremacy with justice instead of all those useless golf courses and lawn jockeys that could be housing, that could be community gardens, schools, All kinds of things that would benefit everyone and could work towards replacing white supremacy with justice. That's not what they want to do. Anywho, we will get started. James Lowen, Sundown Towns, Context of White Supremacy. This is audio segment number one. The Midwest. 
News from the Midwest is not so encouraging. I estimate that about half of Illinois' sundown towns have changed. To calculate this estimate, I examined 2,000 census data for the 167 Illinois communities that I'd confirmed as sundown towns as of mid-2004. Of these, 59, or almost 40 percent, were no longer all white. To that total, I added a few towns that had no black households as of 2000, but have opened up since then, such as Steelville, based on the information that at least two African-American families recently moved in without opposition. I tried to be positive, so I included Vandalia, for example, the state capital for a time in the 19th century. In 1960, it had 5,537 residents, of whom not one was African American. In 1962, when Joseph Lyford wrote The Talk in Vandalia, the town was openly sundown. He quotes one minister saying ruefully, We call our town the land of Lincoln, but the hotels won't rent a room to a Negro and no Negro can buy property or rent a home in Vandalia. There's an old saying that people in Vandalia are glad to help a Negro as long as he keeps on going right out of town. Vandalia was still sundown as of the late 1990s. A college professor who grew up there wrote, Sometime in the mid-90s, a black couple moved to Vandalia, the neighbors of this black couple at first were outraged. I heard the couple referred to as those people, as in, what are those people doing in our town? As the neighbors got to know the couple, though, they learned they were really nice people, and then everyone quieted down. After a year or so, the couple moved away. I'm not sure why, but I heard that the wife never felt comfortable in Vandalia. I certainly can't blame her. By 2000, Vandalia's numbers had swelled to 6,975, including 1,047 African Americans. Had Vandalia had a change of heart or policy? Not exactly. The 2000 census counted inmates at the nearby Vandalia Correctional Center as part of the population of the city. But also, around 1995, ironically, the Ku Klux Klan brought about some improvement. My source continues. Vandalia was the site of a big KKK rally also, sometime in the mid-90s. The rally did have a positive effect on the town in a way, as several churches and groups banded together to hold candlelight vigils to protest the KKK. Many people in Vandalia came forward, arguing that racism is not acceptable. Things have gotten better in Vandalia since then. We now have a handful of black families who seem to live and work in the town with no trouble. I don't hear as many racist comments. Despite Vandalia's amelioration, however, the professor wanted to remain anonymous, 
and the 2000 census showed only five African Americans in just two households, not counting its huge prison population. Thus, Vandalia may still be a sundown town, but I think it's given up that distinction since the professor indicated a handful of families moved in since 2000. As elsewhere, suburbs showed the most improvement. A disproportionate share of the 59 Illinois towns that opened by 2000 were suburbs. Granite City, a suburb of St. Louis, is an example. According to a man who grew up in Granite City and whose father lived there from 1919 to 1997, blacks who worked in Granite City, mainly in the steel mills, had to walk directly to the streetcar line to catch the first streetcar out of the city. There was one exception, a janitor who worked for Rat's Drugstore on 19th and State Street. He was known as Peg because of his peg leg and was allowed to sleep in the basement of the building. Around 1980, Granite City relented. By 1990, 69 African Americans lived among its 32,862 residents. And the 2000 census showed 622. An administrator at Manchester College in Indiana said in 1997 that students from Granite City are very racist and have to be worked with closely if they become dormitory counselors. Maybe ten years from now, that will no longer be necessary, for in 2002, as I drove around town, I saw interracial groups of children walking home from school and using the library together. Other Illinois towns, from Anna through Ziegler, alphabetically, do not allow as much optimism. Of course, still other Illinois towns may now welcome African Americans but none has recently knocked at their gates. So I would estimate that more than 40%, and probably at least half, of Illinois' former sundown towns no longer keep out African Americans. If at least 50% of Illinois' sundown communities had abandoned their sundown policies, then Across the Midwest, my impression is that at least two-thirds have caved in, because some other states seem more progressive than Illinois. In Wisconsin, for example, a higher proportion of sundown towns seem to have lowered their barriers during the 1980s, and especially the 90s. Some places even welcomed them. Fond du Lac, which had had 178 African Americans in the 19th century before the Great Retreat, had just 12 in 1970, but 112 in 1990 and 767 by 2000. West Bend had only 31 in 1990, but that included a deputy sheriff, showing considerable acceptance. To be sure, not every Wisconsin sundown town now accepts African Americans. In 1990, 11 Milwaukee suburbs were violating agreements that they take steps to promote fair housing, according to the Milwaukee County Public Works Director.
Milwaukee's suburbs averaged just 2% black in 2000, while Milwaukee was 37% black. The Milwaukee metropolitan area remains the second most segregated in the United States, after Detroit, owing mostly to suburban exclusion. Many Indiana communities dropped their sundown policies in the 1990s. Of the eight communities I confirmed as sundown towns in 1970, only one has broken for sure, Zionsville, with 29 African Americans among its now 8,775 residents. Nevertheless, where there had been 26 communities with no African Americans at all, by 2000 there were just three. There had been no towns with more than one black household, so all 34 might have had sundown policies, with one household or individual, like Granite City's Peg, allowed as an exception. Now, 10 had two or more households. Among larger towns, Chesterton, in northern Indiana, had only nine African Americans out of 9,124 people in 1990, and a long history of keeping blacks out. But by 2000, it had 13 black households, including that of its postmaster, who retired and continues to live there. Clearly, Chesterton stopped excluding African Americans around 1990. Valparaiso, a few miles south, admitted them earlier. Merrillville, a suburb of Gary, is now 23% African American. The Northwest Indiana Quality of Life Council recently gave the region a poor rating for its race relations, but at least Chesterton, Valparaiso, and Merrillville have moved beyond exclusion. Many towns elsewhere in the Midwest have also begun to let in African-American residents. Is Warren, Michigan, just north of Detroit, open? As early as 1990, it appeared to have cracked, having 1,047 African-Americans among 144,864 total population. That was the year that John and Cynthia Newell and their young son moved to Warren. Because they were African-American, they had a rough time. Skinheads burned a cross on the lawn of their rented home. According to The Cost of Segregation, a 2002 Detroit news story, in the two years the Newells lived on Campbell, near Nine Mile, they were accosted by teenagers who told them to go back to Africa and stuffed their mailbox with white power stickers. I had a white friend that I lost my friendship with because they kept calling her nigger lover whenever we walked to the store, Cynthia Newell said. They threw eggs at her when she was with me. All of the neighbors weren't racist. Some of them wanted to socialize, but they couldn't because they were afraid for their safety. Warren was touch-and-go for a while, but by 2000, Warren had 3,697 African Americans, less than 3%, but clearly a black presence. 
Whether Owasso, Michigan is still a sundown town is less clear. In 2000, Owasso had 27 black residents, but that included kids from Africa in the Bible College, in the words of local historian Helen Harrelson. In 1942, Owasso had allowed African Americans traveling by bus to be in the bus station, but no farther. In 2002, when a member of the Owasso High School class of 42 asked a hotel clerk at his sixth reunion, Are Negroes allowed to leave the bus station? She considered the question absurd. However, the same year, asked if Owasso was still a sundown town, Harrelson replied, It hasn't really changed yet. Sure, they let in one or two, if they behave themselves. I doubt if there are any black kids in the public schools. The 2000 census did show children of school age among eight households with black householders. I think Harrelson was overly pessimistic. Ohio seems to have made more progress. It had no county in 2000 with fewer than about 40 African Americans. Waverly, which stoned and drove out its sole African American resident decades ago, had 51. Nearby Piketon, which likewise drove out its lone black resident, had 21. The cities of Parma and Cuyahoga Falls, which had achieved national notoriety for keeping out African Americans, had almost 1,000 each. Sundown Suburbs and Neighborhoods Because social scientists have computed the index of dissimilarity for metropolitan areas throughout the period studied by this book, D is useful to assess change in sundown neighborhoods and suburbs over time. From 1860 to 1960, the index increased until the average northern city had a D of 85.6. Southern cities averaged 91.9, close to the total apartheid denoted by D equals 100. After about 1968, D finally started to decline. Black suburbanization then grew during the 1970s and 1980s, although much of the increase went to a few black suburbs. The average D for all metropolitan areas with large black populations was 69 in 1980 and 64 in 1990. The number of hypersegregated cities, D greater than 85, decreased from 14 to 4 during the 80s, while the number showing only moderate segregation, D less than 55, increased from 29 to 55. Residential segregation declined further in the 1990s. By 2000, some mid-sized cities in the South and West boasted Ds as low as 40 to 45 low enough to suggest that residential segregation was drawing to a close there. The largest changes took place in the South, owing partly to desegregated countywide school systems. In such metropolitan areas, moving to whiter suburbs doesn't secure a whiter school district, 
eliminating one reason for such moves. Older cities in the Midwest and Northeast, exactly the areas most plagued by sundown suburbs, showed the smallest decreases. Between 1968 and 1980, when the proportion of black students in overwhelmingly minority schools, 90 to 100 percent, was falling in the rest of the nation, in the Northeast it actually rose 6 percent to almost half, higher than any other region. In Milwaukee, jeers and flying bricks met black marchers in the 1960s when they crossed the bridge over the Menominee River to the white neighborhoods on the other side. In 2000, an astonishing 96% of all African Americans in the Milwaukee metropolitan area still lived within Milwaukee itself. David Mendel pointed to the role sundown suburbs played in contributing to this statistic. In Milwaukee, many middle-class blacks have settled in mostly black city neighborhoods on the north side. That trend follows a history of racial inequity in the Milwaukee area. Until the Civil Rights era, some suburbs enforced laws that forbade blacks to buy homes in their communities or to walk the streets after 10 p.m. For the Milwaukee metropolitan area, D was 83 in 1990 and 82 in 2000. This means 82% of all African Americans in the Milwaukee area would have to move to white neighborhoods for Milwaukee to achieve a uniform racial mix. Moreover, at its current rate of improvement, it'll take 400 years for the level of segregation in Milwaukee to resemble such southern metropolitan areas as Greenville, South Carolina, or Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina, today. Detroit, Philadelphia, and some other Rust Belt metropolitan areas showed equally minuscule declines. Even around Detroit, however, most suburbs have admitted a few African Americans. Patty Becker, who has mapped Detroit for decades, calls this honest integration to distinguish it from the expanding black ghetto of Detroit, now spilling over into suburbs. Despite this progress, segregated neighborhoods remain the rule, especially in the East and Midwest. In 1995, Maggie Jorgensen, a longtime advocate of integration in Shaker Heights, Ohio, one of the few integrated suburbs in the Midwest, said, it's still a battle to convince white people that it's okay to live in an integrated community. Ingrid Ellen, taking an optimistic view, began her 2000 book, Sharing America's Neighborhoods, with the claim, racially mixed neighborhoods are no longer as rare or as unstable as people tend to think. Nearly one-fifth of all neighborhoods in the United States were racially mixed in 1990. But this is hardly an impressive rebuttal of what people tend to think, since more than 80% of all neighborhoods were not racially mixed, according to her. 
Some elite suburbs have given in, if at all, only barely. Kenilworth, for example, the elite Chicago suburb, admitted an African-American family in the mid-1960s, but that didn't go so well. A woman who graduated from high school in Kenilworth in 1971 wrote, I clearly remember when the first black family moved in, around 1964. They were very nice, and both parents were professionals. I was in seventh grade. Some boys from my class actually stuck a large wooden cross in the family's lawn and burned it. Even during those times, I was shocked at the prejudice. That family stayed for more than a decade, but eventually left. And by 2002, no African-American households existed in Kenilworth. Tuxedo Park, New York, America's first gated community, had at most one black or interracial family in the 2000 census. The four municipalities that made up Chevy Chase, Maryland, next to Washington, D.C., had just six families, with at least one African-American householder. Their 19 people comprised 0.3% of Chevy Chase's population. On the other hand, Edina, the upper-class sundown suburb west of Minneapolis had 546 African Americans, among 47,425 total population, more than 1%. Beverly Hills and Palos Verdes estates, elite suburbs of Los Angeles, were also open. Beverly Hills had about 500 African Americans almost 2% of its population, while Palos Verdes Estates had 132, almost 1%. Perhaps the best summary is to say that progress has been real but uneven. Metropolitan areas in the Midwest and Northeast have maintained almost an iron curtain, in sociologist John Logan's phrase, dividing black neighborhoods from white. Most suburbs in the South and West have torn this curtain down. One step forward, one back. It'd be wrong to end our analysis of the present on this optimistic note. Clouds loom. Despite the symbolic importance of the 1968 law, in 1993, law professor John Boger gave a pessimistic summary of its impact. By most accounts, the Fair Housing Act has been a disappointing failure. Nancy Denton agrees, finding that hypersegregation persists and often is worsening in most metropolitan areas. If the positive zeitgeist of the Reconstruction and post-Reconstruction years in the North was undone by the view of African Americans as the problem during the nadir, then the changes wrought by the civil rights movement are endangered by the fact that many whites see African Americans as the problem today. Even if many white Americans no longer think that sundown towns and suburbs are appropriate ways to deal with that problem, most people still don't 
turn first to history and social structure to explain why African Americans have less wealth, lower test scores, and are concentrated in inner cities and a few suburbs. Refurbished as the ghetto as problem, this rhetoric remains alive and well and is both the result of unequal race relations in America and the cause of further inequality. The solution still seems to be flight to outlying communities that are, if not quite sundown, preponderantly white and affluent. Thus, the ghetto as problem continues to legitimize overwhelmingly white suburbs and neighborhoods in the eyes of many non-black residents. To be sure, many former sundown towns and suburbs now include a handful of African-American families. Although this marks an important first step toward real integration, the danger of sociolexia lurks close behind. Just as living in an all-white community once seemed natural, now token desegregation quickly comes to seem natural. To paraphrase Billy Bob Lightfoot, quoted about Comanche County, Texas, as a sundown county, almost immediately it seems as though there'd always been a few African Americans in Gross Point, Edina, or Beverly Hills. Now these elite suburbs may develop an ideology that endangers further progress. Their new demography now allows their white residents to claim they never were racist. It's class. In other words, token residential desegregation can prompt whites to forget that their town or suburb flatly kept out African Americans for decades. Without this memory, how can whites understand why there are so few African Americans there now? I can explain this best by analogy. In the 1990s, many former segregation academies, founded in the South around 1970, when public schools massively desegregated, relaxed their whites-only policies. Jackson Preparatory Academy in Mississippi now proclaims this goal on its website. To achieve the broader educational goal of preparing students to participate in the world community, PrEP is committed to diversity in race, color, and national origin in the student body, faculty, and the programs. Its student body looks integrated to whites, now that African Americans are no longer shut out entirely. White students may not remember that PrEP was founded for whites only, to avoid contact with African Americans. But the black community remembers, making many black students reluctant to apply. White students can infer that it is natural for a school to be less than 5% black, but it isn't, not in central Mississippi. Even worse, they may conclude that the shortage of black students results from differences in merit, with African Americans being less able on standardized tests. 
We've seen how residents often interpret the continued overwhelmingly white population of sundown suburbs as the result of economic differences and individual housing decisions, including those made by black families. Even worse, suburban whiteness can get laid at the eugenics doorstep. Whites can blame African Americans for being too stupid or lazy to be successful enough to live in their elite all-white town. Token desegregation makes these interpretations easier to believe, because now non-blacks can point to a handful of black families to prove that we have nothing to do with the overwhelming whiteness of our suburb. Such explanations only compound the problem because whites can infer that racism is over, the metropolitan area and the nation are fair regarding race, and African Americans are responsible for whatever racial inequalities remain. Between 2000 and 2005, arguments such as these have intensified in America, not just in discussions about residential segregation, but about affirmative action and many other policy areas. That's why it's so important to know the history of sundown towns and suburbs, to give this cheery optimism the lie. Perhaps the most prestigious suburban mix at present is 1% African American just enough to avoid the charge of sundown policies, but not enough to be a problem, not enough to pull down school test scores or perpetrate much crime. That old African Americans as the problem line of thought comes through once again. Thus, in the 1990s, Forsyth County was the fastest-growing county in Georgia and the second fastest in the United States, according to the census, partly because it was so white, yet no longer sundown. Unfortunately, 1% isn't black enough to prompt a town or county to face that its schools and other institutions are still white in culture, rather than American in culture. Maybe elite suburbs will go just this black and no further, since elite suburbs seem to get what they want. I doubt it, however, because when a town is only 99% non-black rather than 100% non-black, it's harder to mobilize the white violence, police harassment, and other tools required to keep out additional black newcomers. One Future Increasing Exclusion Keeping out people who don't live the way we live is an increasingly common response to America's increasing gap between the affluent and the working class, not to mention the poor. Some analysts consider Sao Paulo, Brazil, a city of 18 million, an augury of future urban life in our country. Sao Paulo is populated by the fantastically wealthy and the severely poor, with little in between, to quote Washington Post reporter Anthony Fiola, writing in 2002, 
and Sao Paulo illustrates where gated communities and microscopic economic segregation may be taking us. Fiola told of life in Alphaville, a walled city where the privileged lived behind electrified fences patrolled by a private army of 1,100. Affluent residents whisked to and from their well-guarded homes to work, business meetings, afternoons of shopping, even church, via helicopter. The city boasts 240 helipads, compared to 10 in New York City. Brazil has one of the most marked disparities of wealth in the world, continued Fiola, with the richest 10% of the population controlling more than 50% of the wealth. While this sentence may be correct, it's embarrassing that Fiola didn't seem to know that in the United States, the richest 10% of the population controls more than 66% of the wealth. Certainly, Residential exclusion is still the norm within the United States. The census took what it calls the American Housing Survey, AHS, in 1993 and earlier years, including 680 subsamples called kernel clusters. Within these clusters, the AHS begins with one respondent and then asks the same questions of up to 15 others in residences nearest the respondent. According to sociologist Samantha Friedman, in 1993, about 80% of all whites lived in all-white clusters. The only reason this book doesn't treat 80% of American cities and towns is that larger municipalities escape getting listed because they have black neighborhoods as well as white neighborhoods. Especially in the East and Midwest, most white neighborhoods remain overwhelmingly white, but overwhelmingly black neighborhoods elsewhere in these cities deflect them from being classed as sundown. Sundown neighborhoods persist today partly because our social system, a captive of its history, still builds in residential segregation in many ways. Business principles in the three key industries related to where Americans live, development, banking, and real estate, continue to encourage the new forms of residential exclusion described above. Another Future Decreasing Exclusion As I took my leave of John Peters, the black retiree with whom I talked in DuCoin in 2002, a biracial town in southern Illinois, a retired white neighbor dropped in unannounced to chat and maybe go somewhere with Peters. After spending so many days in towns and suburbs where casual interaction simply couldn't take place across racial lines, I'm afraid I stared at the two of them. Racially integrated towns and neighborhoods are becoming more common and more stable, however. Soon, I believe, they will no longer be viewed as unusual. At least, I believe it when I'm in my glass-half-full frame of mind. At the same time, many sundown towns and suburbs haven't caved in. In one sundown town, 
the reference librarian, sympathetic to my research, warned me twice in 2002 to be careful who you talk with. She wasn't kidding. She was concerned for me. And I'm white. I also recall my last conversation in Arcola, Illinois, also in the library. I was talking with the librarian and her mother about Arcola's remarkable history of exclusion and asked if it was still a sundown town. In the 2000 census, Arcola had one household with an African-American householder, a family of three, but neither woman knew of such a household. One said, and the other concurred, there was a black family here ten or fifteen years ago, but they moved on. They didn't know if the family was forced out, but they agreed Arcola was a sundown town. Just then a young man, maybe eighteen years old, walked in. His ears perked up as soon as he heard black family, and he stopped, shocked. Blacks in Arcola? he asked intently. Where? Who? We hastened to assure him that we were just talking about things in the past. Was he just curious, or fixing to act? I couldn't tell. Nationally, research popularized around the 50th anniversary of Brown v. Board in 2004 shows that many African-American students attend class in metropolitan areas whose schools are now more segregated by race than they were 10 or 20 years ago. Perhaps the most accurate assessment of the state of sundown towns at present would be to leave it up in the air. Everywhere I went in sundown towns and suburbs, I met some people who'd like their community to move beyond its restrictive policy. On the other hand, a gap between attitudes and behavior remains. Many whites endorse the principle of desegregation while living in white areas and are privately uncomfortable with the thought of African Americans moving in. Therefore, they don't act on their principles which allows those who do, the excluders, to carry the day. Living in a place where not everyone looks alike and not everyone votes alike is surely good for the mind, as well as the children. Also, since people usually defend their choice of place to live, living where not everyone looks alike pushes residents to defend living where not everyone looks alike, thus making them less racist in their attitudes. Scenes like the interracial friendship I witnessed in DuCoin do take place all across the country. And if they don't in your neighborhood, the next chapter suggests possible steps to take. Indeed, the question before us now is, what can we do to end sundown towns and suburbs in our lifetime? What can we get our institutions to do, and what can we do ourselves? Chapter 15. The Remedy. Integrated Neighborhoods and Towns. Three-Dog Night in Black and White, 
Their 1972 song about school integration sang, And now a child can understand. This is the law of all the land. All the land. We've seen that sundown towns and neighborhoods have bad effects on whites, blacks, and our social system as a whole. Surely we want to stop all this. So how do we get there? How do we desegregate sundown towns and suburbs, racially and maybe even economically? This final chapter is a call to action on four fronts. Investigation, litigation, institutional policy changes, and personal choice. At the end, I add my plea for a Residents' Rights Act that could be passed by state or federal governments to make it in the interest of sundown towns to change their policies immediately. I must add that I submit these remedies humbly. I'm sure that lawyers, community activists, and other experts will find them wanting. Bringing the history of sundown towns into the open is a first step. To end our segregated neighborhoods and towns requires a leap of the imagination. Americans have to understand that white racism is still a problem in the United States. This isn't always easy. Most white Americans don't see racism as a problem in their neighborhood. We need to know about sundown towns to know what to do about them. During the Nader, and even to the 1960s in most places, sundown towns weren't at all shy about their policies. Nothing could be more blatant, after all, than a sign stating, Nigger, don't let the sun go down on you in this town, or a brochure advertising no Negroes as a selling point of a suburban neighborhood. So it's encouraging that few sundown towns and suburbs today, even those whose sundown policies remain in force, admit that they keep out African Americans. Hypocrisy is to be encouraged as a first step toward humane behavior. When residents claim that their community is all white by accident, or blame African Americans for not moving in, at least they no longer openly brag that the town is anti-black. No longer do whites feel it's okay to advertise their racism. Since 1968, when overt discrimination became illegal, they know to keep it hidden. On the other hand, this secrecy helps racism endure. The truth will make us free, goes an important verse of the anthem of the civil rights movement, We Shall Overcome. Surely it's right. Surely one reason we're not free of sundown towns is that the causes of residential segregation have been obscured. In 2002, the Pew Research Center surveyed attitudes about housing and race. Surprisingly, they found that only 50% of Americans had heard that neighborhoods are still mostly racially segregated. And as late as November of that year, 
a professor could routinely email a web discussion list in history in an attempt to begin a discussion of what he called the problems of mandating desegregation. This assumption. Residential segregation is the result of individual rather than government actions. Had he known about the violent expulsions that gave rise to so many independent sundown towns, condoned by local governments, or the blatant acts of public policy, and also violent resistance that led to sundown suburbs, he simply could not have written such a sentence. Awareness of unfairness undercuts unfairness. People who perceive that the social system discriminates against racial minorities are more likely to support policies to reduce that discrimination. Racists know this. That's why denial of racism is a time-honored tactic. During the lawsuit to integrate the University of Mississippi, the state of Mississippi actually claimed in 1962 that Ole Miss was not segregated. No African Americans happened to go there. Therefore, the school hadn't rejected African-American James Meredith owing to race. Amazingly, the trial judge bought this claim. But John Minor Wisdom, speaking for the Federal Court of Appeals, held it to be never-never land and proclaimed, what everybody knows the court must know. Similarly, if we wish to mobilize lawyers, judges, local institutions, and families to do something about sundown towns, we must make them realize what the residents of these towns already understand. If everyone in Anna knows that the letters of the town's name stand for Ain't No Niggers Allowed, then the court must know, and so must we all. These policies need to be exposed, hidden in plain view no longer. Concealment has been especially vital in the suburbs. The system of racial status that sundown suburbs embody needs mystification to work. Remember the paradox of exclusivity? Living in an exclusive area is good connoting positive things about one's family. But participating in exclusion is bad, connoting lower-class prejudices. Therefore, white families achieve status by living in elite sundown suburbs only so long as the racial policy of those suburbs remains hidden. Exposing the unsavory historical roots of sundown towns and suburbs can help to decrease the status that most Americans confer upon elite white communities and undercut the policies that still keep them that way. Elite suburban racism is particularly vulnerable because no one can defend a suburb's all-white racial composition as right without appearing lower class. Thus, the paradox of exclusivity provides a point of leverage for opening suburban communities to African-American residents. 
In many communities, then, more research is the first order of the day. Indeed, in some towns, time's running out. Doing oral history on the period 1890 to 1940, the peak years for creating sundown towns, is becoming difficult because people who came of age even toward the end of it are now nearing their nineties. Children may not learn the local history that their parents and grandparents know. At my website are suggestions as to how to proceed. Professional historians and sociologists can do much of this research, but so can local historians, mere residents, even middle school students. My hope is that this beginning will inspire researchers in each state to identify more of these towns, tell how they came to be sundown, how they preserved their racial exclusivity, and hopefully how they're changing. The race relations history of any neighborhood or town deserves to be investigated if its population has long been overwhelmingly white. Of course, it's possible that no African Americans ever happened to go there, but it's more likely that formal or informal policies of exclusion maintained the whiteness of the place. Most states have historical marker programs that now incorporate advisory committees, including professional historians, that must approve the text of any new marker for accuracy before it goes up. After completing the research required to convince such a panel, the next step, with the assistance of church groups, civic organizations, or the local historical society, is to propose an accurate marker telling your town's history of exclusion and offering to fund and erect it. Even if opposition mobilizes to block the marker, the resulting uproar itself will end the secrecy. Truth and Reconciliation Once we know what happened, we can start to reconcile. Publicizing a town's racist actions can bring shame upon the community, but recalling and admitting them is the first step in redressing them. In every sundown town, live potential allies, people who care about justice and welcome the truth. As a white man said in Corbin, Kentucky, on camera in 1990, forgetting just continues the wrong. Recovering sundown towns, or wider metropolitan areas, or states, might set up truth and reconciliation commissions modeled after South Africa's, to reveal the important historical facts that underlie their continuing whiteness, reconcile with African Americans in nearby communities, and thus set in motion a new, more welcoming atmosphere. The next step after learning and publicizing the truth is an apology, preferably by an official of the sundown town itself. In 2003, Bob Reynolds, mayor of Harrison, Arkansas, 
which has been all white ever since it drove out its African Americans in race riots in 1905 and 1909, met with other community leaders to draw up a collective statement addressing the problem. It says, in part, the perception that hangs over our city is the result of two factors. One, unique evils resulting from past events, and two, the silence of the general population toward those events of 1905 and 1909. The group, United Christian Leaders, is trying to change Harrison, and it knows that truth is the starting place. Ninety-eight years is long enough to be silent, said Wayne Kelly, one of the group's members. George Holcomb, a retiree who is also a reporter for the Harrison Daily Times, supports a grand jury investigation into race riots. Get the records. Study them. Give the people an account of what happened, who lost property, what they owned, who had it stolen from them, and who ended up with it. In some towns, as Holcomb's comment implies, truth and reconciliation logically leads to reparations. This book has mentioned many towns and counties whose African-American residents were driven out at gunpoint between 1890 and 1954. I spent a morning walking around the former black neighborhood in Pinckneyville, Illinois, for instance. It was a haunting experience. I photographed houses, including one that formerly was the black school, and talked with residents, all of them white, of course. Today, whites call the area the Black Hills, by which they do not imply a similarity to a Sioux sacred site in South Dakota. In about 1928, whites drove African Americans from Pinckneyville. They strung one black up at the square, a cemetery worker told me as he showed me around the black section of the town cemetery, which has only two stones, but perhaps twenty graves, he said. What about the home burned by whites as they drove African Americans from Pierce City, Missouri? All two hundred African Americans in Pierce City ran for their lives at 2 a.m. on August 19, 1901. Almost certainly the family that owned this house got no compensation for its destruction, and probably never even felt safe enough to return to try to sell the burned-out hulk and the land. Do their heirs have a claim? Virginia Yearwood grew up in one of the houses that wasn't destroyed. She wrote, As a result of the riot, a number of very nice homes with views had been standing empty for a very long time. My uncle Emil bought one of these nice homes, nice for that time, which had been formerly occupied by blacks. It must have been really tragic as all the houses were abandoned for a long time, some with belongings still in them. Did Uncle Emil pay for the home? Surely he didn't pay the owners. What of the owners of the black private school in El Dorado, Illinois, El Dorado Normal and Industrial Institute?
who were stoned in 1902, and the principal, Jefferson D. Alston, and his wife and pupils were compelled to leave for fear of mob violence, in the words of the Indianapolis Freeman. Governor Richard Yates of Illinois said they'd get protection, but that never happened, and all African Americans in El Dorado fled to nearby Metropolis to save their lives. Did they get a fair price for their property? Certainly it was a distress sale. As Gordon Morgan, whose monograph, Black Hillbillies of the Arkansas Ozarks, is the pioneering treatment of the disappearance of African Americans from that region, asked in 1973, to what extent are those counties legally liable for allowing the forcing of blacks out under duress without assuring that they or their descendants were adequately compensated for loss of life, property, or opportunities. We're not talking about ancient history. In 2004, I talked with Almerian Hollingsworth, whose father, A. W. Birch, owned the hotel in Marlowe, Oklahoma, a sundown town, refused to fire his black porter, and was shot by a mob that then killed the porter. She's lived 81 of her 83 years without a father. Does she have a claim? What of the porter's children? What about Cleveland Bowen, who was three years old when whites in Forsyth County, Georgia, told us we had to be out by sundown, according to testimony taken in 1987, when he was 78. We left that same night. It was kind of rainy. I slept. I was only about three years old, but everybody was so scared and everything, I remember it. We came off and left cotton and corn in the field and two mules and two cows standing in the yard. My daddy said he picked just two bales of cotton and sold them, and the rest was left in the field. I heard my daddy say he was just one payment from having paid for the farm. We had forty acres. My daddy, it hurt him so bad he cried like a whooped child. We rented a farm out here, and my daddy never did get it together to buy another farm. And what about the black children of Vienna, Illinois? driven from their homes in a firestorm in 1954, and now in their fifties. What about the lost opportunities of all the people driven out in all the expulsions described in this book, opportunities to make a living in the towns from which they were cleansed? Most of them were employed, after all. What about the possibilities African Americans lose out on today, growing up in central city neighborhoods, surrounded by poor people and rusting factories, while whites in sundown suburbs grow up surrounded by resources and opportunities? Context of white supremacy. That is our first audio segment of the Next section uh, is legal remedies. That's what we'll pick up at uh, after we do our discussion, legal remedies. If you have a question, comment you would like to share, the number 605-313-5164, the code 
pound. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. I said at the beginning, this is our second to last session on Sundown Towns. Uh, so next week we'll finish this book up. <clears throat> you can be thinking of other books if you have a thought. Uh, I was thinking uh, perhaps since folks said they appreciated what Dr. Uh, Lathan had to share. She's been with us a few times. Uh, she suggested you're not sick, you're thirsty about the importance of drinking water. It is summertime. We should all be increasing uh, our water intake uh, for the summer months, at least those of us, uh, the upper hemisphere, so they say. Um, I was thinking that might be a good one. I believe Emmy on one of the compensatory call-ins over the last month or so, she mentioned the book, uh, The Gift of Fear. And I think Draftomania mentioned that book earlier. So that at least seems like two folks uh, have said that that might be one that they would be interested in reading. Uh, lots of books. I was looking at even some of the uh, newer young adult books that were uh, highly recommended. Checking a few of those out. Have to see if you have a suggestion or thought next book. Let us know. Uh, we have, uh, as I said, one more week and pushing off. Uh, I will say. I know for some folks, I think Mr. Demery Ford and others said, wow, we, we have been reading this book forever. I did note from the beginning, this is a longer book. Absolutely. I think uh, Warmth of Other Suns. Wow, that was really long. Uh, Madiba's autobiography. That was super long. That was uh, significantly longer than even this. Uh, and it can be difficult uh, if you're reading it on your own to stick with it and, and chug through all those pages. Uh, or even, you know, with a group, if you get behind, you get off schedule and that sort of thing. White author is practicing racism. Like, can be a lot of things that can make it challenging to uh, stick it through. Uh, but I do think there's something to be said uh, for completing uh, books, even if they're not necessarily your favorite books. Uh, I know some of the listeners who've been hanging in as we've read this one. Some folks have said that uh, this is almost inching on their one of their favorite books just because they have learned a lot. I have learned a lot. This book personally couldn't be uh, in my top 10 because uh, there are too many instances of uh, what I think is a white author practicing racism, uh, which, you know, I could deal with. A few of those, if there was still, you know, a substantial amount of value uh, to the text. But I mean, wow, it's it's a lot of race relations uh, to have to swallow to have that on the top 10. Although it is informative. I'm very glad that I read it. Even the session that we read last week about Tillamook, Oregon. I have been blathering about that for a good week now. And I live close enough. We could probably drive to Tillamook, Oregon today uh, and be there in time to get a meal for a late supper. Uh, and I did not know about that until reading this book. So I always think you can you can learn quite a bit, uh, even if it's not the most entertaining or well-written book. That said, star six one, if you have thoughts, comments, questions uh, on the section, again, we are winding down. So you can also be having in your, 
I guess, concluding thoughts, if there are major themes uh, that you want to tie together as we get ready to wrap this one up, uh, you can share that as well. May I be yes, ma'am. I heard both of you. Uh, Go ahead, ma'am. Thank you. Uh, thank you kindly, Mr. Demery, for. Thank you, Mr. Dimry, for uh, thank you for allowing me to share. Just briefly, I guess towards the end, because I kind of missed most of the first part. Um, it's, I guess, I'm a little grateful. I don't know; it's probably not the best word. At least that it's kind of um, he's kind of make making it seem as if he's trying to offer solutions. Of course, solutions that white people aren't going to do. I know. Um, in this most recent last part of section, he had uh, when he was talking about how white, the younger white generations can make sure that the the sundown town history of their towns or what have you is preserved by putting up a marker and this, that, and the other, and then paying for it. But then he also said that the the generations, the preceding generations wouldn't know about the history, which also seems like that's a lie. It's just that they won't um, make the information as public as what they did previously. So they would know, of course, the reason why there are, you know, maybe only one or two non-white students in their class, because I'm sure their grandfather has told their father or their mother or what have you. So I think that that's definitely just a, another lie. And, um, just based on uh, the other book that I just recently finished, The Queen, it seems like, I don't know if his book is widely read by other other white people, but there were some instances in that other book where they were talking about sundown towns in Illinois. So I thought it was really interesting how it's kind of like, I, I don't know if maybe I'm noticing it more because we've read the book, or maybe he is actually um, being referenced, and maybe that's, of course, the the main reason why he even did all this. So that way he would be able to lay claim to the fact of him putting all this information together. However, if since we live in a, a racist society, a white man or a white woman would have to be the ones to go into these all-white towns to gather this information. I highly doubt that white people, whether by email or what have you, would be so open to, you know, say especially what the uh, what Anna actually stood for. And I'll meet my line. Thank you. Much obliged, Red in Nevada. This book, uh, I get the impression that <clears throat> this book is very popular uh, amongst uh, whites, especially whites in the academy or whites who talk about racism, uh, like the Jane Elliotts or the Dr. Peggy McIntosh or. Uh, the white fragility, uh, I just, her name is escaping me for the moment, but any of the white people that are talking about racism as though they are against it, uh, they will have read this book and probably mention Mr. Lowen. And he's written those other books too, because he wrote um, Lies My Teacher Told Me, like he's written so many, he even has a more recent book about the Confederate monuments. So he's like a, a respected white expert on matters dealing with race relations. So yes, I think it's, you'll probably see even more references uh, to Sundown Town, Sundown Town, or his work, or some of his other books. Um, Mr. Demry Four, thank you for your patience, sir. Uh, thank you, may I be heard? 
Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, greetings, Gus. Greetings to the other callers and listeners. I read. I uh, enjoyed the commentary. Uh, I'd like to start out with <clears throat> uh, the author seems, you know, to me to be uh, blaming the victim a lot. You know, when he makes reference to the all-white towns and the reasons why whites uh, form these all-white towns. Um, he mentioned like uh, Vandalia, I guess that's in Missouri, and I thought about what you said, think about these areas as opposed to nowadays where there is tension and and violence, terrorism against black people. Um, when he was talking about Vandalia, you know, and how uh, because you don't hear racist comments anymore, uh, might lead you to believe that there's been a change in that area or that you see some white kids walk into the library uh, with some non-white kids. But he failed to mention that uh, there may be an increase of percentage of non-white people, but there's a prison there within the city limit. And they already said earlier that they count the prisoners as part of the population. So he could be practicing racism now with deceptive statistics and the rhetorical ethic that uh, Dr. Nee was talking about is, you know, how I feel like he's blaming the victim, you know, uh, bringing all this, uh, can you still hear me, Gus? Yes, sir. We can hear you. Okay. All right. Yes, uh, I'll mention uh, he made a uh, inference to a uh, pig, supposed to be, uh, I guess, a black man with a pig leg. He slept in the basement of a building. When you're talking about all white town, if you can only come up with one or two people or less than one percent how can you say that that is no longer uh sundown town because uh less than one percent how is that even uh calculated um he mentioned some of i think the name of the family was the new rails blacks who encountered terrorism uh, and it said that they encountered the terrorism because they were black. No, they encountered the terrorism because whites was practicing racism. And uh, they continued to create Sun Downtown and continue to practice racism. And uh, there was a quote in there where one black person, I think, was trying to convince whites that it's okay to live with blacks. I think it's a waste of time to try to convince whites to live with blacks because we've been living with each other since the beginning. It's, it's always been the same. There's no real progress. And then I think it was practicing racism uh, when he started comparing 
Sao Paulo with uh, uh, what's going on here in, in this part of the planet, uh, talking about uh, white people as a gap between their attitudes and their behaviors. You know, I think that they're not even trying to hide it anymore. Actually, I don't. I don't see a bunch of hiding unless it's to their benefit. They're going to get elected or, or you know, gain economically from hiding their racism. But sometimes they're even practicing it, you know, uh, as they uh, make money. So, and last, let's see, now you mentioned uh, James Meredith who's the first African-American to apply and gain enrollment in the University of Mississippi. And see, now he's 80, about 86 years old. And he's, he's a victim. He's been on the line, the front line. He, he, got, he became a lawyer and is a civil rights activist today. And he's still alive. And last... The farmer who had only one payment left on his farm and was run off by whites. I think that his family or descendants, descendants uh, is due restitution. I'll mute my line. Thanks, sir. Thank you, Carl. Hi, can I be heard? Uh, thank you for your commentary, Mr. Demery Ford. Yes, ma'am, we can't hear you. Oh, I do apologize, uh, uh, Mr. Newport. Um, I'm enjoying uh, Your volume yeah, is yeah. very low. Your volume is very low. Uh, uh, can you hear me now, Beth? That's a little better. I guess if you can get can maybe closer now? to your uh, receiver uh, and or just make sure you give us a lot of volume as you share. Okay. Um, I said I'm enjoying the book um, right now. And um, I just wanted to give you um, some suggestions for uh, some books, uh, maybe, um, that we can uh, think about maybe reading in a book club. Uh, the first one is um, Black Skin, White Mask. You were talking about reading that before. Um, they do have it on audiobook. Um, I had the opportunity to read it and listen to it on um, audiobook. Um, the Judas Factor, or um, this is... Um, Dr. DeGruy's book, uh, Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. And um, I had an opportunity to listen to uh, the archives um, and uh, for Beryl Satter, uh, and it was a very um, a good interview. I just wanted to let you know uh, I got a lot of information uh, from, that, uh, from that interview uh, today. And thank you. And that's all I have. Much obliged, Beryl Satter, her book, uh, Family Property. Uh, it's specifically about uh, so-called residential segregation and uh, housing, uh, but it's specifically about Chicago, although she does give a tidbit here and there about some of the other places and some of the same racist patterns in other cities, uh, particularly cities with a, a substantial number of black people. But uh, I, too, thought that her book has a lot of good information uh, on the program. Uh, in fact, I think one of the first questions uh, I asked her, this is terrorism, yes? 
And she said, yep, she agreed without a whole lot of pussyfooting. Yep, this would be terrorism, even though it's not physical, but going in and making sure that people are in fire traps or don't have adequate housing or you steal their housing or you're doing things to uh, deliberately steal all the because they would do the same thing as some of the same examples. You would have black people there. They would be one payment away from paying the whole thing off. And then they would come and say, oh, you missed the payment or oh, they were out of power because these are fire traps. Oh such and such and boop, we keep all of your money and you're kicking you out on the street in Chicago. Better luck next time. That's the exact type of thing that she described uh, in her book. Just slightly different scenario. She didn't say race relations. She said that is terrorism. Uh, let's see. If, star six one for other folks. If you have a thought question you would like to share, I'll keep an eye on the switchboard as we proceed. Uh, the other book that I was going to mention, uh, Something Must Be Done about Prince Edward County. Uh, we had the white author of that book on the program, I think in 2016. Uh, we And that book is specifically about Prince Edward County, Virginia, where they closed the schools for five years. And I mention that because we've had a number of, we've talked about that a number of times. Uh, I'm very familiar with Virginia. I've talked about that before. The Coon Man. Uh, but I mentioned that book because you can go back in the archives and hear that broadcast as well. But I mentioned that book because this is a white woman in Virginia. She still lives in Virginia. Now, oh, and that's a cowbell because she's married to a non-white male, uh, the author of this book. Uh, but she is writing about the white terrorism in Virginia and how they deliberately closed the schools and did exactly what he talked about in the book, built schools exclusively for white children with taxpayer money, no less, and did this for five years. Uh, she's talking about this and acknowledging that this school still exists, although now exactly what he said in the book, they do have a few token Negras and hey, we're not all about that. Blah, blah, blah. Um, but she said, hey, my parents were the ones who did this. My parents were the ones who went about getting the funding and, oh, no, you're not going to have my daughter in school with some nigger. And, and it's my parents. It's my grandparents are the ones who did this. Like, that's a part of the book, her going and talking to her white family members about why they did this and what are their thoughts about this. And weren't you concerned about the black children and blah, 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 and all this other stuff. When he talks in the book, Mr. Lowen, Sundown Towns, about these white people being ignorant or they don't know, you know, how this happened in Forsyth or Anna or wherever it is. I don't know. All of that is a lie. Again, he wrote the book, Lies My Teacher Told Me. I don't know what I was going to say. I don't know why he has such difficulty using the term lie to describe, in my view, accurately what's happening happening here. It's uh, that they are allowed to forget or they don't remember or they're ignorant or they can obscure history. No, it's their relatives. Like they're not talking about like some aliens came down and kicked out the Negras and then went back to, you know, Jupiter. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about grandma and grandpa. And sometimes it wasn't that long ago. Ma and dad uh, were the ones who booted the Negras and they brag about it like this is not some man we are so sorry and I've been trying to find all the black people and you know pay them for their property and oh this is the worst thing I've ever done in my life racism is horrible oh that's not the case they're sitting around bragging but we guess we got rid of the Negras and you had better not let a nigger in that house that's what we've heard the whole book they're making nigger jokes and what have you about it putting it up on billboards and putting mules up outside of town to brag and threaten 
about any other black people coming here. So in my view, much of what he has presented in the text contradicts the very notion that white people are somehow not informed, ignorant, any excuse other than they're simply lying about racism, white supremacy. And that is the word. That's the word that I've been using in the descriptions most consistently is concealing, obscuring. That's generally what you do with criminal activity. You deliberately hide and conceal. You don't want to get in trouble. You do not want your criminal deeds to be exposed to scrutiny. Whites are expert at that sort of thing. And again, he's mentioned some of that in the book already. It's not that they don't know. They are lying. He mentioned in the book about them going back and destroying the news archives. Uh, Picking out some of the specific things. Let's see. Oh, I loved it. I made so many of my highlights this week were around white children. Uh, she says, she's talking about Grand City. He says, Manchester College in Indiana said in 1997, the date, 1997, that's not ancient history. That is 30 years approximately after the assassination of Dr. King. That's more than 30 years after the assassination of Malcolm X, the Civil Rights Act, the March on Washington, 1997. Bill Clinton is in office, for goodness sake. That's after the super predator bill had already passed. Even that was ancient news. 1997, that students from Granite City are very racist, in quotes, and have to be worked with closely if they become dormitory counselors. Wow. Very racist but they're still allowed to be dormitory counselors? That seems like, whoa, you should be disqualified immediately. Like, how can we have you welcoming non-white students and you are very racist? They didn't, I don't even see that where someone is quoted as being very racist. And how do you work closely? What does that even mean? Are you sleeping with them? You have to put someone in the room with them who is not racist. That's their job to make sure that they don't perform any racist acts with the non-white students. Uh, Let's see. Milwaukee, lots of Wisconsin folks. Uh, The Milwaukee metropolitan area remains the second most segregated in the United States after Detroit, owning mostly to suburban exclusion. I'm always reminded of uh, Wisconsin for uh, a number of reasons and the job of terrorizing black, terrorizing black people that they do, locking up black males, especially uh, in Milwaukee. Uh, Next. When they mentioned Peg, it reminded me, and this is the black male who allegedly had a limp and he lived in the basement. It reminded me many of the anecdotes about the black people who are the quote unquote exceptions in these towns. They end up with these degrading names. Remember, I think one of the names was uh, Snowflake or Snowball for one of the uh, black people in the town. They have these really degrading names and it's still like they're a prisoner, like you're in the attic uh, or you're in the cellar or the basement or someplace and then oh yeah we got you're the mascot of the town like it's just super good the pet negro that's uh what he said that they called this sort of thing we have our pet negro peg and he limps uh he's uh we have the actual physical uh debilitation and it's already a negro so it's like he he can doubly reinforce how we want to think of and portray black people defective uh let's see This was a, they said, uh, so there, I guess this was a black female, Cynthia Newell, 
uh, where she's recounting some of her experiences in Warren. This is, he says, a little bit north of Detroit. I've never thankfully been to Detroit or Michigan. So this is uh, a victim. She says, in the two years uh, the Newells lived in Campbell near Nine Mile, they were accosted by teenagers (laughs) again and again. This is not white ignorance. Uh, to go out and be on attack and look at what this is, accosted by teenagers who told them, go back to Africa and stuff their mailbox with white power stickers. That is not ignorance. They had paraphernalia. I couldn't go stuff black power stickers in somebody's mailbox right now. It would take me a little while to, to get that together. They had paraphernalia together and their slogans already. And these are white teens. Again, they're not ignorant about racism. That's why I said he's contradicting himself all the way throughout the book. Just make it plain. White people lie about racism, white supremacy. They're not ignorant. Even the five-year-olds, even the teens, they're very aware. They got their literature, stickers and all. Next. Oh, I love that he just piled them up with the children. So next he says in 2002, when a member of the Owasso High School class of 42 asked a hotel clerk at his 60th reunion, are Negroes allowed to leave the bus station? She considered the question absurd. However, the same year asked if Owasso was still a sundown town. Harrelson replied, it hasn't really changed yet. Sure, they let in one or two if they behave themselves I doubt if there are any black kids in the public schools. I thought that was important, the behaving themselves. That is very paternalistic, generally the way that you would talk about children. Uh, that's, again, Mr. Fuller, that's why we don't say man and woman in a system of racism, white supremacy. You got boys, gals, males, females. Can't be a man or a woman if you're subject to racist man, racist woman. And that's the way that they talk about us. Uh, I thought it was interesting because this white uh, person, uh, Harrelson, is saying that she doubts that there are very many black children, if any, in the public school system. Mr. Lowen says the 2000 census did show uh, children of school age among eight households with black householders. I think Harrelson was overly pessimistic children in eight households, that's not exactly like it's overflowing with black pupils. I don't know how many uh, children that they had. I mean, if it's to a household, that would be 16 children. That's not a whole lot, uh, if indeed it's even that many. So it sounds like even maybe it's not zero, but it sounds like they don't have a whole lot of black children in this area anyway. And he talks so much about what he terms uh, token integration. It looks like we're no longer a sundown town. It looks like we're no longer racist. See, we can point to we got four or five black households right there. Come on out, Peg. Come on out, Snowflake. Next. Yes, mm. chapter. It's called One Step Forward, One Step Back. Uh, let's see. He says. Hmm. White woman being shocked about racism in the 1960s. Uh, Metaphors. He had some fascinating metaphors in this section. Uh, He says uh, metropolitan areas in the Midwest and Northeast have maintained almost an iron curtain in quotes in sociologist John Logan's phrase dividing black neighborhoods from white. Most suburbs in the South and West have torn this curtain 
down. He continues with the metaphor. All of that, in my view, uh, is incorrect. Uh, and again, we're in a system of racism, white supremacy. I don't know what they mean by tearing uh, the curtain down. That makes it seem like the problem is immediately solved. You have an object up that's uh, causing a barrier. And now that barrier has been removed. It's substantially uh, not that at all. Uh, it's not as though immediately you have all of the black people in wonderful neighborhoods, wonderful housing. That does not happen anywhere. Uh, yeah, let's see. There were a few other, I think, metaphors that were incorrect. Mm-hmm. He had the other, he starts the chapter uh, one step forward. One step back, he says it would be wrong to end our analysis of the problem on this optimistic note. Clouds loom. Mr. Fuller in the word God has dark clouds and he talks consistently about that. Uh, people talking about dark clouds and gloominess and anything that is obscuring or blocking out whiteness, brightness, light to be very cautious about those types uh, of terms. I don't know what we mean when we say clouds loom if we mean white people being racist. Or refining their racism be specific uh, let's see hyper segregation is another one of those terms I have no idea uh, what that means be specific yeah he says forget he, he uh, comes back when he's talking uh, this is gross point or he's talking about a litany of different places he says just as living in all white community once seemed natural now token whatever that means token desegregation quickly comes to seem natural to paraphrase billy bob lightfoot quoted about comanche county texas as a sundown county almost immediately it seems as though there had always been a few african americans in gross point adina or beverly hills now these elite suburbs may develop an ideology that endangers further progress saying that oh we've had a few black people here all along again i am submitting strongly whites know that this is not true they can use that rhetorical ethic lie what do you mean we're racist look here i just showed you peg we've always had black people here yes they can conveniently tell that lie but they know he already said that they have historical societies and what have you in many of these areas. And they know that they didn't have any black people. They conveniently leave that part out when you go and start asking details. Oh, yeah, I remember when we lynched the Negroes, strung them up over there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Of course, we're not going to talk bad and have our town looking all shameful and racist. No, we're not going to do. That. And again, we got black people living here now. That is a part of racism, white supremacy. Uh, let's see. And he continues with that analogy. Uh, again, I said, be very mindful. Anytime whites begin using metaphors, analogies to speak to you about racism, white supremacy, a lot of times confusion follows. Uh, let's see. And that's where he gave the analogy about the school. And if they're not a whole or the school that was originally to exclude black people. Now they have a, a few black people. As I said, that's why I mentioned that book. Something must be done about Prince Edward County. These white children know who built the school their parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles next uh when he said i don't know if people because this is specific but the portion he said in one sundown town the reference librarian sympathetic to my research warned me twice in 2002 to be careful who you talk with she wasn't kidding she was concerned for me uh and i am white the way that he said white there was interesting it was like he had more emphasis on the h 
white. I felt like that was the way he said it. It, it does not. It did not sound like the way that he pronounces white in other parts of the book. I don't know if anybody remembers that specifically. Uh, I also thought that that was uh, significant, this sympathy and empathy uh, shown for this uh, powerful white man, white author, best-selling author and educator, uh, concerned that something was going to happen to him for going out and doing uh, this work, which again, just for me, shows if you are white, you cannot be ignorant about racism. You can't forget. You can't be dumb. You will get a reminder from other, the librarian right here giving them a reminder. You might be getting close to violating the code. Some people might not agree with the way some of the other whites might not agree with your code of practicing racism, white supremacy might cause a problem. Can't be ignorant about racism. Mr. Fuller, brilliant. Other white people will let you know. Uh, let's see. Oh, this is one of the best illustrations in the book. He said, so he's uh, Arcola. He's talking, same town in Illinois. He's talking uh, to this white family about whether or not there were black people here. She says there was a black family, but they moved on. I don't know if they were forced out, blah, blah, blah. So he continues. He says, Arcola was a sundown town. Just then a young man, maybe 18 years old, white children uh, walked in. His ears perked up as soon as he heard black family and he stopped, shocked. Blacks in Arcola? He asked intently, where? Who? He hastened to assure, we hastened to assure him that we were just talking about things in the past. Was he just curious or fixing to act? I could not tell. One of the most important uh, portions from this week's section, just that right there, because I have observed that same phenomenon when out in public, and talking about white supremacy, you can see the alertness of white people like, what? What is that? Did somebody just say white supremacy? Is he talking about white supremacy? And they will just stop and immediately they are all in. They want to know. Sometimes they'll even hop in the conversation. I've had that happen numerous times uh, over the years since I've been talking about white supremacy racism. I am not surprised at all. And this is an 18-year-old with that level of intense alertness to the point that Mr. Lowen had to make detailed note of it. Uh, I'll give one more and then double check, see if anybody else has. Uh, I think the the rhetoric, this is why this book can't be in the top 10. Whites steal rhetoric and racist tactics from other whites. That's in uh, Edward Baptist, The Half Has Never Been Told, where he talked about uh, plantation owners would swap ways of torturing and terrorizing their slaves, black property. His illustration in this book, Truth and Reconciliation, that that would somehow solve the problems, that is so repugnantly ridiculous when right now, and I mean right now, June 22019, they just had an article about how uh, black people in South Africa, they're having all of these problems. White people kept all the quality land. There's been no land redistribution. Uh, the exact same problem that they're talking about here, black people not having quality housing, not having uh, quality access to property and white people finding different ways of stealing black property. They had truth and reconciliation, I thought, 20 years ago. It's been more than that now, 25 years ago uh, in South Africa, and it did not solve any 
of their problems with regards to white supremacy racism. They just had their tacky 20-year anniversary for all of that, uh, the Truth and Reconciliation trials. And that was a huge theme that we didn't even get anything accomplished and that the problems are just as bad and black people are still in a terrible state and white people still have all their power and blah, blah, blah. Why do the same thing here so that we can waste time and a whole lot of money on a whole lot of conferences? Yeah, it was bad. We strung up Peg right there. Let's put up a monument to Peg. And black people are still struggling with the exact same problems. Nothing has been solved. It'll be yes, we truth and reconciliation. And we'll hug and embrace and hold hands. We'll all get together and sing. We shall overcome. He mentioned that in the text. We'll sing a song or two and come back and do the same thing in 10 years. Uh, I will... Uh, I'll st- or I guess the last thing I'll say, he says that no longer do whites feel it is okay to advertise their racism. This book was published in 2005. Uh, in 2019, the current president, I think, might be indictment enough that that is not true. That <laughs> uh, I think in the system of racism, white supremacy, it depends. Sometimes it's acceptable to say and to be public and flaunt your white supremacist views and conduct, sometimes it's better to conceal. And it can fluctuate rapidly depending on what's happening, what would be best to strengthen white supremacy. But again, I think the current president alone would be enough of an indictment that that is not true. You do not necessarily have to be ashamed about practicing racism, white supremacy. Uh, Anybody else have a final thought question they want to get in before we get to the second uh, audio segment? Everybody satisfied? Grant, legal remedies uh, is the second, or that's what we're picking up at uh, for the second audio segment. Uh, I reckon pay attention to metaphors because he had those interesting water metaphors uh, last week and the cloud metaphor this week. So be mindful if you can, if you have the book or if you're, you know, alertly uh, paying attention to the audio segment for metaphors. Uh, And I guess for the way that he pronounces white, uh, because that did stand out for me. I'm not sure if folks were mindful, but now we can all be uh, attentive to that for the second audio segment. James Lowen, Sundown Towns, Context of White Supremacy. This is our second audio segment. Legal Remedies There are precedents for reparations. After the 1885 murder and expulsion of Chinese coal miners in Rock Springs, Wyoming, the United States paid survivors and heirs $150,000. Springfield, Illinois, did pay damages to black citizens whose property was destroyed in the 1908 riot. Indeed, the city had to issue bonds to pay all the claims. More famously, the United States paid $20,000 to every Japanese-American who had been placed in a concentration camp during World War II. More recently, 
North Carolina made modest reparations to people its eugenics board ordered sterilized between 1929 and 1974. On one occasion, a state paid monetary reparations to African Americans to compensate them for losing their homes and employment as the result of violent expulsion. In 1994, Florida paid nine survivors of the 1923 Rosewood Massacre, in which whites destroyed an entire black town, leaving a sundown town nearby, $150,000 each. A state commission recommended that Oklahoma follow suit in 2001 to compensate survivors and heirs of blacks attacked in the 1921 riot when whites tried to make Tulsa a sundown city, killing somewhere between 30 and 300 African Americans in the process. But Oklahoma and Tulsa seemed to lack the political and moral backbone to emulate Florida even though a similar breakdown of the state and city function of maintaining order made the riot possible. Having failed to get Oklahoma to pass a reparations bill, attorneys have launched a lawsuit in federal court. Nevertheless, Rosewood remains a useful precedent for reparations, particularly since it resulted in at least one sundown town, Cedar Key. So does what happened in West Frankfort, Illinois. Whites drove Sicilians and African Americans from that southern Illinois city on August 5th and 6th, 1920. Many of the Sicilians returned to live in West Frankfort within the week, but African Americans haven't returned in any number to this day. Some Sicilians then brought suit for damages and a U.S. federal court eventually awarded them more than $11,000, the equivalent of more than $100,000 in 2005. African Americans won nothing, having no chance to obtain justice from a town that had just expelled them. According to a newspaper account, They've sent back a representative to settle their bills and wind up all affairs of the colored race in this city. The case for reparations resulting from the many violent expulsions that led to sundown towns avoids most of the issues that are brought up by opponents of reparations for slavery. We do know, or can learn, who specifically was injured in each expulsion. Some victims and many heirs are still alive. Also, slavery wasn't illegal, while the expulsions of the nadir were. Yet federal, state, and city governments refused to provide African Americans with the equal protection of the laws guaranteed them under the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. In 1863, the federal government punished the whites from Anna, Illinois, who'd expelled African Americans from Union County, and that was before passage of the 14th Amendment. But from 1890 to 1968, the federal government rarely, if ever, interfered with a sundown town. 
it showed no interest in prosecuting the whites who expelled African Americans from Anna in 1909, for example. State and local governments were often equally lax. As David Zimmerman put it, writing about the 1905 and 1909 race riots that drove African Americans from Harrison, diligent research has failed to reveal any records of actions taken by law enforcement officers or any other local officials to protect Harrison's African-American community at any time preceding, during, or after the attacks. Thus, not only the perpetrators, but also local and state governments share responsibility for repairing the damages caused by the expulsions and the sundown towns that resulted. Legal actions can remedy other governmental actions and inactions that have helped sundown towns last so long. As we've seen, beginning in the 1930s, the federal government required neighborhoods to be all-white for participation in mortgage and housing programs, and it even built several sundown towns itself. State governments were also complicit bystanders that ignored or facilitated actions that created sundown towns and counties. Most local governments of sundown towns and counties worked actively to keep their jurisdictions all white. Some still do. Governmental complicity yesterday can provide openings for judicial intervention today. The previous chapter gave examples of lawsuits that have succeeded against sundown towns and their exclusive ways. The 1977 Seventh Circuit decision, known as Arlington Heights II, held that plaintiffs don't have to prove that town officials had a conscious intent to keep out minorities. It's enough to show that their policies had that effect. Of course, since sundown towns and suburbs have oral traditions of intent as well as effect, Sound historical research can make lawsuits against them very winnable. State courts hold promise, too, because many states already have useful open housing laws on their books, some dating to the Reconstruction era. The Mount Laurel judgment in New Jersey and the Newcastle case in New York, as summarized by historian Kenneth Jackson, require suburbs to accept a fair share of the disadvantaged populations in their areas and to make an affirmative effort to provide housing for lower-income groups. In 1999, an affordable housing developer sued Bluffdale, an all-white suburb of 4,500 people south of Salt Lake City, Utah, for what they contend is a discriminatory zoning scheme that will continue to exclude racial and ethnic minorities and people with disabilities, according to the National Low-Income Housing Coalition. Apparently, the plaintiffs succeeded in winning new policies from Bluffdale, and in 2000, a federal district court found that Sunnyvale, Texas, a suburb of Dallas, 
had long engaged in what the court concluded was discriminatory zoning. The judge's opinion includes a careful and useful review of federal law in these cases and notes that the Fair Housing Act prohibits not only direct discrimination, but practices with racially discouraging effects. These decisions offer important precedents because many sundown suburbs have used zoning, minimum lot size, and related policies to keep out African Americans. If such cases as Sunnyvale can be won without specific evidence of exclusionary practices, then testimony about these practices should make successful legal actions against sundown towns and suburbs still easier. That these practices originated decades ago doesn't render them moot. For once a policy is in effect, the burden shifts to the community to show that its policy has changed. Many sundown towns have done nothing to publicize or implement a new policy, which is why they continue to be all white. Now that suburbs have become more populous and more important economically than inner cities or small towns and rural areas, it's critical that they shake off their sundown origins. Undoing Millican versus Bradley Unfortunately, one legal decision constitutes a dangerous precedent. The previous chapter told how school desegregation decisions in southern states helped lead communities there toward residential desegregation. This same process had begun to desegregate northern metropolitan areas, too, until halted by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1974. In Millican v. Bradley, the court largely freed white suburban districts from any legal obligation to participate in metropolitan desegregation efforts, as Jack Balkin put it, writing in 2001. African Americans in Detroit had recognized that the Detroit public schools were going overwhelmingly black, so they sought desegregation with white populations in the suburbs. Of course, the white schools of Dearborn, Warren, and other suburbs didn't admit to being white as a matter of law or public policy, de jure. They merely served the children who lived within their district boundaries, and those children just happened to be all white, de facto. The Millican opinion awarded primacy to suburban school district boundaries. Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart cast the deciding vote, denying African-American students' request for integration with suburban schools. We've seen how most white Americans came to view residential segregation as natural, rather than resulting from governmental policies. Like them, Stewart claimed to be baffled about the causes of residential and school segregation. It is this essential fact of a predominantly Negro school population in Detroit caused by unknown and perhaps unknowable factors such as immigration, birth rates, 
economic changes, or cumulative acts of private racial fears that accounts for the growing core of Negro schools, a core that has grown to include virtually the entire city. The factors behind all-white suburbs are knowable, of course. Immigration, birth rates, and economic changes do not explain why thousands of workers built cars in Dearborn and Warren, but the black ones all lived in Detroit or Inkster, while the white ones lived where they worked. Private racial fears do play a role, but not merely because they motivate thousands of private decisions by individual white and black families. These private racial fears result in part from a panoply of private and public policies that have been responsible for making and keeping suburbs white. Indeed, sundown towns show that no clear distinction can be maintained between de jure and de facto segregation. For decades, as we've seen, Government officials were decisively involved in keeping Dearborn white, for example. Previous chapters told of the repeated attempts by African Americans to live in Wyandotte and the repeated private acts of violence by Wyandotte residents and formal acts by its city government to keep them out. A similar list of violent and nonviolent actions, performed or condoned by city governments, has interfered with the free choices of African Americans to live in Grozeal, Gross Point, and other suburbs in the Detroit area. When the perpetrators of violence go unpunished, the government is again involved, albeit one step removed from the actual act against black would-be residents. Evidently, little of this information about Detroit's sundown suburbs, including the explicit actions over the years taken by their governments to stay all white, was considered by the Supreme Court. In the absence of this information, five of the nine justices held, as Potter Stewart put it, the mere fact of different racial compositions in contiguous districts does not itself imply or constitute a violation. Therefore, they said, that residential segregation was not open to remedy by litigation. In turn, school segregation resulting from residential segregation was also not open to remedy. Absurdly, so long as a sundown suburb avoided segregating its handful of black students into a majority black school, the judges held that it was operating lawfully. Thus, because Dearborn, Grozeal, the Gross Points, Warren, Wyandotte, and others had been so racist as to exclude African Americans almost totally, in 1974, their school systems were declared not racially segregated. Looking back three decades later, the importance of Millikan is obvious. This ruling largely ended the efforts of federal courts to desegregate school systems in the North, 
following the promise of Brown. Today we can see that not only was this decision bad sociology, it also amounted to a tragedy for Detroit and the nation. In effect, it told whites that if they didn't want to live in a majority black neighborhood, have their children attend an overwhelmingly black school, and suffer the lower prestige and other disadvantages that such schools and neighborhoods entail, they'd better move to a sundown suburb. At the same time, the decision signaled suburbs that they could continue to be all-white, so long as they didn't openly say they were. The consequences were further white abandonment of Detroit and some other central cities, continued resistance to African-American newcomers in the suburbs, and further mystification of the sundown process. In Millican, the majority stated, it must first be shown that there has been a constitutional violation within one district that produces a significant segregative effect in another district. Perhaps a new case can be brought against those Detroit suburbs that remain overwhelmingly white today, fully revealing the links between past public policies in sundown suburbs and residential segregation, and then making the obvious connection between that residential segregation and today's overwhelmingly black schools in Detroit. Local institutions can end sundown towns. Litigation isn't the only avenue to change racist policies. People connected with institutions, governments, corporations, school systems, can get them to act to undo sundown towns. Here are some specific steps, starting with the gentlest and moving to the harshest. Every sundown town or county should announce officially that it intends to become more diverse and should set up a Human Relations Commission to accomplish that end. The town should then send a letter to every real estate agent in its area informing them that housing in the town is open without regard to race requiring them to state their intent to show, rent, and sell property to all, and inviting them to contact the Human Relations Commission in case of any problem. Schools and city departments should also state their intent to welcome and hire non-white employees to overcome their town's history of exclusion, and should drop any requirement that prospective employees must live within their boundaries before employment. As with historical markers, if a jurisdiction refused a request from citizens to do or say these things, the resulting publicity would be valuable in itself. Of course, talk is cheap. Many sundown towns have already subscribed to anti-discrimination statements and keep on discriminating. Nevertheless, such statements are a first step. 
Moreover, the presence of a Human Relations Commission counterbalances the bad apples that otherwise can seem to speak for a sundown town, while the majority does nothing. It sends a signal that some whites, at least, will oppose acts of hostility toward a black would-be resident, and it provides people of color with a place to report threats or other problems. Fayetteville and Jacksonville, North Carolina, which are among the least segregated cities in the United States, show what leaders of local institutions can do. In this case, the local commanders of the United States Armed Forces. Fayetteville is near Fort Bragg. After the 1964 Civil Rights Act pointed the way, Army leadership helped open Fayetteville's golf courses, bars, and other public facilities. Camp Lejeune, a Marine Corps base, made a similar difference in Jacksonville. Because the armed forces realizes that its men and women live or spend time in nearby communities, for decades it's made relationships with nearby communities including race relations, part of the evaluation process for base commanders. To be sure, some commanders treat this requirement merely as a bureaucratic nuisance. Nevertheless, it helps, and every government agency, state and federal, needs to make these concerns part of the job definitions of those who run its local offices. After all, Government offices and agencies exist in almost every sundown town. Imagine what might happen if each of them tried seriously to end their town's exclusionary policies. Governments in metropolitan areas, or state governments, can also equalize the amount of money spent on students in different school districts so students enjoy something approaching equal educational opportunity. In most states, the way we pay for public K-12 education, as well as other local public services, pits suburb against suburb across a metropolitan area. This competition makes it in no suburb's interest to provide or even allow affordable housing. Equalizing tax dollars across the state or across municipalities in a metropolitan area solves this problem. Although elite sundown suburbs often oppose such tax equity, Courts have found unequal property tax-based school finance systems unconstitutional in 21 states, and other states have taken steps toward more equality without the spur of lawsuits. Whites move to sundown suburbs for four main reasons. To achieve status, to avoid African Americans, enjoy amenities such as better parks and nicer neighborhoods, and provide better schools for their children, and not necessarily in that order. Fiscal equalizing can remove the last two as incentives, luring whites to move to white suburbs. 
schools can adopt other policies that promote school and neighborhood integration. In some districts, Denver and Louisville, for example, previously all-white or all-black neighborhoods can get neighborhood schools back, with no busing, if they desegregate residentially. This provides an incentive for residents of sundown neighborhoods to let African Americans move in, so their own children won't have to be bussed out. Some school systems, including Wake County, North Carolina, Raleigh, and La Crosse, Wisconsin, take care to make each of their schools diverse in social class as well as race. School districts can also take steps to end test flight. In today's metropolitan real estate markets, lofty school test scores have become a sought-after commodity. One reason why parents move to the suburbs is to get good schools, and an easy, if shallow, way to compare schools is by standardized test scores. In Massachusetts, for example, according to a 2000 report, school districts that score badly on the MCAS, that state's standardized test, are likely to have houses for sale as parents try to move their kids to schools with better scores. The trouble is, high scores on standardized tests correlate with race, white and Asian, and class, affluent, at least as well as with good teaching. Elsewhere, I've presented some of the reasons why African Americans, Native Americans, and Hispanics score lower on these tests. Given these gaps, it's in suburbs' interest to keep out these groups so their schools will look better as measured by the test scores, so their homes will be worth more. School districts should disaggregate scores by race, income category, and academic program. Disaggregating allows everyone to face the statistics openly. Many white parents won't move into a school district that they think will disadvantage their children. Yet white students in an interracial district may score as well as white students in an elite sundown suburb, so they're not being disadvantaged. But that fact can't be inferred from overall school means that include black students. Similarly, college-oriented parents won't move into a school district if they think its students are likely to score poorly on college entrance exams. Yet some economically diverse high schools prepare their college-bound students at least as well as elite sundown high schools, where almost everyone is college-bound. But their success can't be inferred from overall school averages that include non-college-bound students. Institutions of higher learning can also help to desegregate sundown towns and suburbs by admitting students without giving so much credit to the stacked deck that elite suburbs provide. This means jettisoning standardized tests such as the SAT and ACT, 
or factoring into account their built-in racial and class biases, as well as the various aids that elite suburban children use to score higher on them. It also means returning to straight high school grade point averages, rather than something called uncapped GPAs, which artificially raise the grades students get when they take advanced placement, AP, courses. Enhancing grades in AP courses results in striking geographic unfairness. The average uncapped GPA for suburban students admitted to the University of California at Berkeley in 1999 was at least 4.33, for example, when an A equals 4.0. Meanwhile, the valedictorian of an inner-city high school with a straight-A average, but no AP courses, earned only a 4.0, and wasn't even competitive, and all because of where the student lived. Corporations can also do much to undo sundown towns and suburbs. Many companies are already becoming good citizens regarding race relations. Some got the message the hard way, after bad racial practices brought them notoriety. Once a company's been doing a good job hiring and promoting people of color, it naturally becomes more concerned about the race relations of the communities where it's located. Now it has African-American managers who want to live in hospitable and pleasant towns, and white executives who want to keep those managers happy. The Quaker Oats Company required Danville in central Illinois to pass an open housing ordinance as a condition of locating a plant there, for example. And Danville isn't even a sundown town. We can infer that Quaker Oats would never locate in a town that it knew excluded blacks. And not just Quaker. Earl Woodard executive director of the Chamber of Commerce in Martinsville, Indiana, notorious for its sundown policy, complained in 1989 that owing to its bad image, Martinsville hasn't nabbed a single one of the industrial facilities that rained down on central Indiana in the 1980s. White families can dismantle sundown towns. Those of us not a part of any large corporation or other institution, and without much governmental influence, what can we do? Surely, every American has a stake in remedying sundown towns and suburbs. White people created sundown towns, and whites and others can dismantle them. People who live in an overwhelmingly white community can move. After they realize that choices by white families to live in white neighborhoods aggregate to form a social problem that then affects an entire metropolitan area, some whites refuse to live in a place that's part of the problem rather than part of the solution. When they move to an interracial neighborhood, Often they help it get better schools, parks, 
and all the other accoutrements that make a successful community. Moving into an interracial or majority black community can seem intimidating for whites from sundown towns who've never known African-American friends and neighbors. It needn't be. Sociologist Karen Lucy found the best race relations in majority black suburbs. Whites who moved into these suburbs after they were already substantially black get along particularly well with their neighbors and are involved in neighborhood activities. My experience confirms her findings. Whites don't have to be so bold as to move to predominantly black neighborhoods, however. Almost every metropolitan area contains at least one majority white suburb that's struggling to stay interracial against the pressures deriving from sundown suburbs. Moving there not only provides such suburbs with incoming white families that help them stay integrated, it can also deter white flight by families who already live there. People who don't live in sundown neighborhoods can challenge the paradox of exclusivity described in Chapter 11. Asking why with quiet astonishment when acquaintances announce that they're thinking of moving to a town or suburb known to be overwhelmingly white invites people to explain their decision, suddenly no longer obvious, to live in such places and may make them think. So do questions such as, but don't you hate to send your children to such an overwhelmingly white school system? Put to residents of such towns. Such conversations begin to reverse the status hierarchy that confers prestige on residents of all-white or overwhelmingly white communities, in turn decreasing their hold on the popular definition of the nice part of town. This challenging of racial exclusion is beginning to happen. As early as 1992, the authors of Detroit Divided noticed that some whites in the Detroit area rated Dearborn, renowned for its sundown policies, undesirable because they didn't want racist neighbors. Suddenly, where one is supposed to live isn't so clear. Decreasing the prestige of all-white neighborhoods and towns helps all parts of the metropolitan area become more open and attractive to all races and social classes. Whites who don't want to move from their overwhelmingly white communities can instead move their towns toward diversity and justice. White residents can persuade their school system that it can't be competent without a seriously interracial faculty. Nor can a police department be fair, or perceived as fair, while being all white. They can persuade their zoning board that these new teachers, police officers, etc., need to be able to live in the community where they teach, so affordable housing must become a priority. They can represent the excluded, who, by definition, 
can't represent themselves because they've been kept out. They can even bring them in. In 1969, residents of Valparaiso in northern Indiana brought families from Chicago public housing projects to new homes in Valparaiso. The residents made the mistake of revealing their plan before finalizing their first home purchase, and a white supremacist stepped in to buy the house at a higher price. Eventually, however, they relocated Barbara Frazier Cotton and her children, and later another family, to Valparaiso. At first, telephone threats and cars slowly driving by were terrifying. Frazier Cotton tells of sleeping with the lights and television on to dissuade would-be intruders. Valparaiso University students set up patrols outside the house at night, and white couples sometimes slept in the home to provide support. Despite the opposition, Fraser Cotton stuck it out for ten years, during which she earned a bachelor's degree from Valparaiso, and her six children got a start that helped each of them build middle-class careers. Valparaiso was a tough case. If a few white liberals could crack it in the 1970s, surely most sundown towns and suburbs can be overcome today. Sometimes old-fashioned protests help. Demonstrators, mostly from Atlanta and mostly African-American, marched in Forsyth County, Georgia, in early 1987, continuing into the 1990s. Five residents of Forsyth County marched with the group on the first day, and more thereafter. Racist groups, such as Richard Barrett's Nationalist Movement, held counter-demonstrations, not understanding that all publicity about sundown behavior helps bring about change. Oprah Winfrey gave coverage to the issue on two occasions. By the late 1990s, Forsyth County had several hundred black residents, while sundown counties to its north, such as Towns County, without the benefit of demonstrations or publicity, did not. White families have standing to bring cases on their own behalf against realtors, city officials, and others responsible for their town's all-white makeup. Quoting Justice William O. Douglas for a unanimous Supreme Court in Traficante v. MetLife et al., tenants in a California apartment house whose manager kept out African Americans had lost the social benefits of living in an integrated community and had suffered embarrassment and economic damage in social, business, and professional activities from being stigmatized as residents of a white ghetto. This 1972 case, and others decided more recently, provide useful precedents for white families to act to force sundown towns to reverse course and announce that they've done so. Wacky. Just wacky. 
Uh, so we have one more session and we will be all done. Um, double checking the page count. Yep, we are all done. Next Thursday, last session. James Lowen, Sundown Towns, A Hidden Dimension of American Racism. We stuck it out, ate up almost the entire spring. Woof! Moving forward, we have great suggestions. Uh, the Judas Factor. I have read that book already. It was great. Uh, not that I'd be opposed to reading it again, but there's no audio book. So if we have any volunteers to read The Judas Factor, that might be one. Uh, if folks are are so inclined, uh, I have to check out, see if there are any other suggestions. Uh, racial Personality and Other Essays, Psychopathic Racial Personality and Other Essays, Bobby E. Wright. That's pretty good. That's right in my top 10 list as well. That's another one. We would need a narrator uh, if someone is interested in reading. Justice at gmail.com. The number 605-313-5164. The code 564-943. Pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Uh, if you have thoughts, questions, something didn't make sense, uh, feel free. Uh, if you did not get to share after the first audio segment, uh, but you have a question or thought that you want to share now, definitely get your hand up soon. Uh, do not wait until the last few minutes uh, so we can make sure we include you in the dialogue. Uh, folks who dialed in, uh, if you have a hand up, you should be with us. Uh, Mr. Demery Four, Red in Nevada, uh, other uh, Draftomania, uh, I'll nab other folks as I see hands. Maybe nothing stood out from second audio segment or folks are still gathering their notes. I'll share a thought or two while folks gather their notes or check over whatever they marked down from the first or, yeah, from the second audio segment. Uh, let's see. Mm -mm. I could start with the last section because my mind was still there, but uh, I'm going to try to go. Actually, I'm not going to go in order. I'm going to read uh, one of the notes that I took so that I do not forget. Uh, let's see. Okay, so like I said, you have to go through and read uh, the footnotes for some of these, and there are a lot of footnotes uh, in this book, so it's kind of a task. Uh, but footnote number 43, uh, and this is for the last portion uh, that we read, talking about the power that white families have. So this is Mr. Lowen writing. He says, since 1996, I have lived in a neighborhood in Washington, D.C. that is more than 80% African-American. For seven years, I lived in a majority black neighborhoods uh, in majority black neighborhoods in Tugelo and Jackson, Mississippi. In all three places, I have enjoyed my neighbors and have never been made to feel out of place. I just thought that was uh, important uh, to share, uh, particularly uh, when people talk about white people being uh, intimidated or scared that I've seen lots of this uh, where whites are able to freely 
go and live and study amongst victims, non-white people all over the world, not just Washington, D.C. or Mississippi, all over the world. They go and do this and are not thought of as racist. I have seen that feat accomplished many, many times uh, over centuries, not just in the last 20, 50 years or so. But I thought that was important. Now I can backtrack to the actual uh, text, although, again, if you do have the book and you've been reading along, uh, I would encourage you to kind of keep uh, be mindful of the footnotes. They do have important information. Some, sometimes he just will add like an additional paragraph or two uh, about a particular section or reference or just a few additional details that are not in the body of the text. Uh, so can be a good idea as you recheck those footnotes. OK. Uh, Let's see the footnotes. He said, I said, be mindful of metaphors. He says, Oklahoma and Tulsa seem to lack the political and moral backbone to emulate Florida, even though a similar breakdown of the state and city function of maintaining order made the riot possible. This is talking about different incidents of black residents being purged uh, in Oklahoma. Uh, Tulsa did not want to do repairs uh, for these black people. Uh, I don't think that is a uh, lack of moral backbone. Uh, I think that's just dedication to racism, white supremacy, um, particularly when he gave illustrations of how uh, other victims of racism, other non-white people, and even other white people have gotten reparations for being mistreated uh, for a variety of different things and the unwillingness to do so with black people. Uh, even though this is being talked about a lot right now, uh, I do not think that that's much is going to come of it. This is just uh, fair for political season. Uh, let's see. Next. I thought it was important because he said uh, he said a few times comments uh, about uh, prejudice and suggesting that that is uh, a low class way of thinking uh, to be racist or prejudiced uh, when he has uh, pointed out repeatedly that federal governments uh, and very powerful whites have been responsible uh, for racism, white supremacy, and even if we're specifically talking about the sundown towns, uh, you having the Federal Housing Administration uh, with the redlining policy that's backed by the FHA, uh, securing these loans, that's a big part of how black people are not able to buy houses in certain areas, restricted, like what Beryl Satter talks about. That is not low-count, uneducated white people. That is powerful white people who are responsible for making huge decisions that impact millions of people for generations. I thought that was important to point out, but just, again, it contradicts this notion of uh, the racist whites are the no-count, low-class whites. That gets repeated on a regular basis. Uh, let's see. Next, this whole uh, section, it's titled Local Institutions Can End Sundown Towns, uh, where he just talks about these. Are, it should be white people. He should have put that specifically in the title. And I guess you can start right there where he says people connected with institutions, white people connected to institutions. Sometimes an individual white person is the institution. Uh, but in my view, he is accurate. He is honest. You can have one white person, especially if you get a powerful white person, that can be enough sometimes to get a lot of problems solved. Again, we come back to the will and the ability. If you have white people that are dedicated to racism, white supremacy, well, then this is not going to happen. And again, he's written this entire book, unless I have not been paying attention or misread 
The main point of the book, I thought, was that these sundown towns, uh, it's an enormous number of them. This is not one or two or three or 12. It's hundreds of them, could be thousands uh, of them stretching across the country. He said at one point it could be said that the entire country uh, is an enormous sundown town. If that's the scale of the problem, and that's even global, even though this book is just about the U.S., then he already knows that you're not going to have uh, a substantial number of whites, a significant number of whites to step forward and say, all right, this is totally ridiculous, and we're not doing this anymore. Negroes are welcome, and I'm going to go about making sure that that happens today. They are not interested. So again, that should just be stated clearly. I think it's obvious why we've been having this problem for so long, but it's just no need uh, to come and say he says all this rhetoric, every sundown town or county should announce officially that it intends to become more diverse and set up a human relations commission to accomplish that end. Are you kidding me? That I mean, the not, Donald Trump is president. What are you talking about? <laughs> like, uh, the nonsense to have white people wasting time like this, that's, you know, another, in my view, it's key. You solve this problem by being accurate, uh, not by pussyfooting and not by sharing information that is not correct. You spent all this time and years collecting all this data and all of these lynchings and different acts of terrorism, not even using the word terrorism in the book. And then you get to the end and you have this nonsense that is supposed to be an alleged solution to the problem. And then he says all that nonsense. And he says, of course, talk is cheap. How many copies of this book did you sell with this cheap talk? Uh, and then he comes after that and he comes with more nonsense. He says, nevertheless, such statements are a first step. Not really. That's a metaphor, too. Moreover, the presence of a human relations commission counterbalances the bad apples that otherwise can seem to speak for a sundown town while the majority does nothing. That is totally a contradiction of every major theme of this book. It's not a counterbalance to have this Human Rights Commission if you've had legions of legions of whites from Illinois, Mississippi, Georgia, Washington. They can gather and organize violence to purge black and or non-white people, but especially black people, and then keep them out for generations and brag about having done so. You don't have that as a counterbalance. They would have to have some sort of equal human rights coalition. We also have troops to make sure that that sort of thing doesn't happen. We have troops to keep the black people safe. Uh, we have resource. I mean, it's not a counterbalance at all. And even that suggests why I said again, those metaphors, bad apples. It's not a bad apple situation. This is the same thing we talk about with enforcement officials. It would have to be the entire tree would have to be examined for this problem to be so prolific and widespread. And it's not even accurate in my view just to say that the majority does nothing as though they don't agree with this. That's not the case. You can't have generations of white children saying go back to Africa and stuffing white power stickers in black people's mailboxes and then say this is just a few bad apples. In my view, Mr. Lowen is just being flagrantly dishonest. He's practicing racism. Uh, let's see. Give out one more and then I'll check. See if folks have any thoughts. Uh, he says. White families can dismantle sundown towns. They can. They don't want to. And this is important. Uh, as I don't know if I got to mention it last week. There's a report that came out. It was on Melissa Harris Perry's uh, program as a black female. She uh, does economics at Emory University in Georgia, close to Forsyth. And she said they've done data where uh, white people are not 
interested in dismantling sundown towns living around black people. They're just not. They've done the evidence on this. This should be flagrantly obvious self-evidence. Uh, but they do not, even if it's no crime, they have all the amenities, they have great schools and everything that you would want in a neighborhood. It's in their price range. If it's a substantial number of black people, it doesn't even have to be uh, majority black. Just there are some black people there. No way. No, thanks. And it's an overwhelming number. It's not a small number of whites. It's the vast. It was like over 70 percent of them. Like, ah, anything that's connected to black people, I'm good. Don't want that at all. That's what I mean about be truthful. Uh, he, but he says, after they realized that choices by white families to live in a white neighborhood, uh, white families to live in white neighborhoods aggregate to form a social problem that then affects an entire metropolitan area. Some whites, now that's key too, some whites refuse to live in a place that is part of the problem rather than part of the solution. Now, this one he does have a footnote, but it's not related to white people. Uh, it's related to, uh, oh, wait a minute, he does, okay, I'll read the footnote. So this footnote 42, on their way out of town, non-blacks, that's what confused me, non-blacks, was he talking about a white person, might sell their sell or rent their home to a black family, thus fixing sundown towns all by themselves. As they leave, they might arm that family with introductions to their best friend, church, and other. He has all this nonsense. Again, this is not footnoted to white people actually doing this all of this is hypothetical if people can point out white people doing this and he's had an additional 15 years basically since this book was published if he can give an updated edition where oh yeah there are white people that do this this is not just some goofball fantasy that i made up but there are white people at least one five twenty that i can point to that oh yeah they sell their house to a black family and arm them with all the resources and data. And these are good white people who will look out for you. These are some white people you can invite over to sleep on your couch to make your, uh, sure that you're safe. Blah, 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 blah. Give you the whole rundown. And these are whites who've actually done that. That would be something different. He didn't do that. Uh, uh, last thing I guess I'll say. When he gave the anecdote about the black family. And they moved into town. They stayed for 10 years or so. The mom, she was able to get a master's degree, further her education. Children set themselves up to get what he called a middle class uh, life, whatever that means. That's uh, in Mr. Fuller's word, uh, word guide, middle class, to not use that term. Uh, but he said that they moved in, they had problems, they got threats, and they had white people that they would invite to come and sleep over at their house when things were bad. I do not know about you listeners. For me, that would be a deal breaker. I move in. Things are so bad. I now have to have white strangers, my new white neighbors. They have to come and have a slumber party at my house just to keep me safe. Wow. Listeners who dialed in, if you have thoughts, questions to share, uh, proceed. Yes, my be heard. Mr. Demi Ford, yes, sir. Uh, yes. Well, uh, mostly uh, I heard him, you know, mention something about, uh, you know, restitution or 
uh, paying the families of some of the victims from Rosewood and some of the other incidents, but it was really minute compared to the enormous uh, terrorism and the effect that, uh, you know, these policies and, and uh, practices have done to black people, it, it just doesn't even begin to uh, uh, make a dent in what has happened. And, and like you said, some of those uh, um, methods that he was talking about implementing, it was almost laughable to think that some white people would even consider doing any of those things. As a matter of fact, they, uh, these white enclaves, and uh, they may not call them sundown towns now, but these neighborhoods are still being created and coming up. And so, just like Mr. Fuller said, uh, a lot of this stuff is just hidden in plain sight. But if you take time and really look, you can see what's exactly going on. And like you said, with a president like Donald Trump, uh, white people are not being coy about practicing racism now. As a matter of fact, I can see it myself just uh, they're getting more blatant, just outright offensive. And it would just behoove victims to just be alert and to uh, not be fooled by uh, literature and the media who tries to spin things another way and have you believe that uh, things are what they are not. Uh, I'll mute my line, Gus. Thanks for taking the call. Believing things that are not, absolutely. Uh, any other folks who dialed in, uh, if you have additional questions, comments? May I be heard? Uh, Red in Nevada, yes, ma'am. Um, thank you for allowing me to share again. I I definitely took note of the Frazier Cotton family, and I thought the same thing about you having to have a white couple sleep on your couch and then leave your TV on and, you know, even just the financial cost of that um, just to be in a all-white town, and they could only deal with it for 10 years. So, yes, they had some type of, I guess, small gain, but just overall, I can only imagine like the mental um, effects that had and just what Dr. Grew was talking about how I don't know how young the children were. I don't know if they were like really young because I know she spoke about like, you know, within the first two years, if the child doesn't feel safe, that can increase the cortisone level. And so I've just I, that made me think about that with how high their stress level may have been. But to have to have a white family like really stay in your house, that's that's unacceptable for that to be a a solution. And even in the whole 
this section where he speaks about um, the remedy. And then he, he also brought up one um, as, as far as in the section about like the reparations for different people. And of course you had the Italians or the Sicilians or whatever they were, the white people um, getting the most and how he calculated it into today's terms and black people in that same neighborhood, not getting anything. Um, I just thought that that was, was interesting. And I don't know if Sicilians and Italians are the same thing, but um, just referencing another book um, that I had read, how like some of the Italians, when they would move into different all black neighborhoods, they would violently take over different black enterprises. So I think that's even more of a insult to injury for to, uh, to give white people money. Um, because they were made to move out, but then they were allowed to move back in. But uh, also in that same section, he talked about how it was proposed to pay restitution to the the Tulsa, Oklahoma survivors. survivors. So it's not like that's not necessarily a remedy if it's just a proposal and nothing actually carried through. So I don't know what that would even be a part of that. There have been lots of proposals, but if you only have just, very few that are actually that were actually um done then that doesn't that doesn't make sense for that to be a part of it and i also heard him you know the whole bad apples thing which is ridiculous it's almost as if you know there's only one person to blame or just a few people to blame for the racism no these white people are moving into these all white suburbs and keeping them white just without saying that they're all white or majority white because that's what they want I think it's it's, it's definitely um, dishonest to act as if that's not what they want. They wouldn't if they didn't want it. They wouldn't move there, and they wouldn't continue to move there. Which I thought is something that he mentioned in the earlier chapters. How yes, you have white people moving into the inner cities to gentrify them, but they're still moving into areas where there are still white people, or white people are starting to come back into and or they are deciding to move back out i i feel like at least from what i know from personal experience it seems like the whites that are moving into the inner cities are the ones who don't have children yet and then once they realize oh i have a child and i want them to have you know the same opportunities quote unquote as i did they move back to the suburbs so that's why i think they that could possibly explain the the cycle of the whites moving um, what have you. So uh, I'll mute my line at that. Thank you for allowing me to share. Much obliged, Red. Now that is interesting. I'm even, because I was thinking about Seattle um, where I met while, while you were sharing that and so many people have moved uh, to this area, but a lot of the folks that move, especially to like the city, um, they do not, they are white people who do not have children. Uh, the white people that have children, they tend to be the ones that uh, move a little further out uh, or either outside the city uh, altogether. But yeah, that is that is a very common pattern in terms of the moving, moving back where they happen to be situated uh, within the system. Uh, any other folks, uh, any other comments they want to make sure they get in again la uh, next week? We are all done. Uh, be moving on to a brand new book two weeks from now. We'll finish up next week if folks have any final thoughts. People that have been listening uh, to the archives, if you want to email in, 
uh, any, I guess, concluding thoughts, if you learned anything, if you learned something about your area specifically as we've been riding along and you did some more digging, did some more research, would love to hear that as well. But we will be concluding uh, next Thursday. Uh, let's see. Just checking my notes here myself to make sure I didn't uh, miss out on anything else. Uh, uh, sure, there were a few others. Um, he says moving into interracial or majority black community can seem intimidating for whites. Uh, certainly didn't seem intimidating for Mr. Lowen. Uh, I think even that idea, yeah, I don't think that was one that I got to mention. Uh, I just, again, I, I, fear of white genetic annihilation. Yes. In terms of white people, just they're intimidated, afraid, scared of black people. He's given us dozens of anecdotes, it seems, of white children's of various ages running black people out of town. If the white children are not intimidated, if the white children are leading the charge, are you telling me once they're uh, of grown age that then somehow the phobia sets in and they just, you know, have to run and hunker down uh, if a black person should come by? That's just nonsense. Uh, whites are not intimidated, fearful of black people. That's just more of the rhetoric, uh, unless we're talking about white genetic annihilation, which is something totally different. And I don't think that's what he means when he says that in the text. Uh, let's see, check in for my last few notes, uh, unless any other folks have a final comment or question. Uh, we will be back tomorrow for neutralizing workplace racism, uh, given the report that was shared yesterday when Dr. DeGruy was here uh, about urine in the workstation. Uh, if anyone has come up with a counter-racist code for how you respond to that, be ready to share tomorrow, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific uh, for workplace racism. And then the compensatory call-in will be Saturday, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. If in between that time you think of a book, you can share uh, if you come across anything, you hear people with suggestions uh, for great books. A lot of times people do those summer uh, reading lists. So if you hear anything that sounds like it would be constructive, preferably by a non-white author, since we just read uh, a white author, feel free to drop an email and uh, we will give it a hoot, maybe vote and see what'll be our next book. Uh, let's see. Uh, oh, the portion about the armed forces, that is uh, an important one. He was talking about Jacksonville, Florida, and he was saying that Jacksonville specifically is really good and that they've come a long way in terms of uh, fighting against, quote unquote, segregation. Uh, they wrote specifically because the armed forces realizes that its men and women live or spend time in nearby communities for decades. It has made relationships with nearby Jacksonville communities, including race relations that were, again, part of the evaluation process for base commanders to be sure some commanders treat this requirement merely as a bureaucratic nuisance. Nevertheless, it helps. And every government agency, state and federal needs to make these concerns part of the job definitions of those who run its local offices. There is no footnote uh, directly for any of that. So I'd be very curious as to what is the evaluation process uh, for 
race relations? Like, what does that even include? Like, did you go to, you know, a certain number number of uh, diversity meetings? Like, what, how many black friends do you have? Like, what is the criterion for even, you know, gauging this process? Like, if you started down here on race relations, on the race relations scale, which you've made, like, I I would need more information. He didn't have a footnote. Uh, And as for Jacksonville, now, I don't live uh, in Florida or even North Florida. That's where Jacksonville is. I've been there before, though. Uh, But even still, uh, if they have uh, more black people, it's less, quote unquote, segregated. I guess you have more non-white people and white people living in closer proximity. Have we solved the problem of white supremacy racism? Uh, again, I've said that's a major problem that I have with the book because that seems to be uh, the flagrant uh, suggestion to the problem. Like if we can just get white and black people all living together, that's why he keeps bringing up that index that things will be better. You can get access to that middle class lifestyle and maybe white people won't be intimidated by black people. And I just, I reject all of that. Again, if that were so, this problem would have been solved on the plantation. They would have realized that we're human beings and we would have said there would have been no civil war. All this would have been taken care of a long time ago. That's not what this is. And in my view, that sort of thing is very confusing because he does have a lot of constructive information. But when you're presenting uh, inaccurate concepts of how we grasp and understand racism, again, what it means to be white and how they function, how they continue to function generation after generation. That's where the confusion comes in for victims, not racists reading this book. I assume folks are good. May I say one thing? Yes, ma'am. Um, just one other thing about the Fraser Cotton family situation. Um, I'm assuming that, that white people, they know the history of other white people, quote unquote, protecting black people. So I don't know why they would assume that a white couple staying in a black household, quote unquote, would protect the black family. So I'm also wondering maybe if that was a way for them to spy on the black family, make sure that they are a suitable um, black attempted family to even be in, in the city because that, that um, now that I'm thinking about the rest of the book and he's also, the, the author has also provided examples of white people trying to per, quote unquote protect a black person and they get killed. So it's, it's kind of like making me think about that whole, that, that whole white people staying in the house thing. Um, I'll meet my line. Thank you. I thought of that as well. I didn't know if I was being uh, paranoid, as they say, or, you know, super uh, suspicious. But I was thinking because they you already said in the book, they got to be well behaved. I had, uh, had a white woman who said that in the first audio segment. We can have, you know, one or two of you all provided that they're well behaved, that that could be a part of the all right. We'll see if these niggers are well behaved. We scouted the house out. We checked out the bathroom. I stayed overnight. I went through the like, just, yeah, that's why that if that's got to be a part of the process, like if that's when they sell me the house and they hook me up with all the info I need to know. And that's part of it. Like, oh, OK, this is Helen and John. They'll come and sleep over if things get up. Like, whoa, <laughs> whoa, whoa, <laughs> like, uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, I could see if all of that was what it took to get that middle class lifestyle, quote unquote. And then even with all of that, you could only survive for 10 years. Wow. We'd be interesting to hear their assessment, the uh, Frazier Cotton family, if they think that all of that was worth it uh, after 10 years, like the children, everybody, like what's your assessment after you went through all that? This is the life that you got. Was it worth it to see what they think? 
Anywho, uh, much obliged for folks dialing in and sharing. Uh, I think that is there should be information, I guess, on that family specifically. That's footnoted uh, footnote number 46. It says a struggle, a struggled balance of hope and fear. What a title. The Valparaiso Times, June 29, 2003, almost uh, what is that? 16 years to the day uh, by David Mitchell. Uh, it's a struggle, a struggled balance of hope and fear. Valparaiso Times. If anyone finds it uh, and it has more information on the family, uh, feel free to share. I'd be interested in checking that one out myself. Uh, with that, we will wrap things up. Uh, thanks, everyone, for participating. I hope it was a constructive uh, investment of your Thursday. We'll be back in about 24 hours. Reading is more important than watching television. Sobriety would be best under conditions of racism. Let's keep our brain computers functioning optimally so that we can solve the problem. Racist man, racist woman, racist child. In addition to being sober, let's be buckled up every time we're in a vehicle, passenger or driver. Additionally, let's stay off the cell phone. Important one. Uh, race soldiers look for any reason to stop us and cause us a lot of unnecessary problems. Just trying to do all the little things that we can to minimize contact as best we can. That said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cows signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.